Everyday people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, do you prefer sweet or savory treats at the holidays? Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. We are at our second to last episode of the year. And today we're going to go south of the border to Mexico. They are going to have their election on June 2nd in 2024. They only go to the polls every six years. So it's part of what makes this year in 2024, I don't know, say this year or next year right now, um, depends when you're listening to it, makes 2024 such a huge year for elections because you have countries that are on four, five, and six-year cycles that are all converging here in a huge election year. And so I wanted to bring in Pamela San Martin. We had been on a panel together, I think for the American Enterprise Institute, talking about AI and elections. And she is just utterly fascinating. She's a member of Meta's Oversight Board. She worked at the Mexico Electoral Commission called INE. And so we talk all things about the country, how technology is being used, what she's concerned about, um, how the oversight board is thinking about elections related content. It is one of their pillars that they're looking at. And so I hope you all really enjoy while we kind of talk about what to expect out of the elections in Mexico. I am joined by Pamela San Martin, who is a member of the Oversight Board and has held a lot of different positions in Mexico around elections. And so, Pamela, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you so much, Katie. It's great being here. So let's start by you just giving a little bit more about your story and your background and where some of your expertise is. Well, um, I was born, raised, and always lived and worked in uh, Mexico. And most of my life, I have worked in state institutions, but particularly in autonomous bodies that oversee government action and that protect citizens' rights. First, I worked in uh, in Mexico City's Human Rights Commission, where I spent a little over eight years. And after that, I went to uh, Mexico's Electoral Institute, which is now called the INE, National Electoral Institute in Mexico, where I worked uh, over 10 years, about. And in between, well, in 2014, I was appointed by Congress as one of the electoral, of of the 11 electoral counselors in the electoral body. That is the highest uh, decision, the body of of the institution. And um, so basically I have worked my, my entire life. I've dedicated my life to build, uphold and strengthen these institutions, these sort of institutions but building and strengthening these institutions not as an end in itself, more as a means to promote, to protect, and to guarantee rights, freedoms, and ultimately democracy. I, I mean, I, I think we all have the right to think differently and that our differences are basically the core value of democracy. And the state has to guarantee these rights for all of us. Every single state uh, has to protect these rights. So uh, that is... I have dedicated my life to this enforceability of those of those rights. And now I'm working as a consultant in elections, democracy, in especially violence-driven countries. <laughs> and in I'm also, as you just mentioned, I'm a member of Meta's Oversight Board. That's fantastic. And one of my goals with this podcast has really been to shine a light on, you know, oftentimes the U.S. gets a lot of attention, but there are a lot of elections happening next year, including in Mexico. For our listeners who might not be as familiar with how Mexico's government is structured, how they conduct elections, can you give us a little bit of a primer on that and and how they work? Of course. In Mexico, we have a democratic federal republic, 
with both uh, federal and local institutions and governments. And next year, we will hold elections to renew Mexico's presidency. All of Congress, that includes both the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies. And we will also have many local elections. At the local level, nine of the 32 uh, governorships will be renewed. We will uh, elect local congresses in 30 states, 30 of the 32 states. And they will, we will hold municipal elections in 29 states. In other words, we will, have, we will elect more than 20,000 positions throughout the country. And now let me give you a very brief explanation of Mexico's electoral body, the National Electoral Institute. Uh, since its scope, the scope of its functions is quite unparalleled in other countries, and the range of the activities is carry, it carries out are not very obvious. Or the way it carry the way it carries out these activities are not very obvious. Usually, when international observers come to Mexico to monitor our elections, they are they're usually struck by the complexity and technical proficiency of our electoral system. For example, people are often amazed that the whole election in Mexico runs on volunteers who are chosen at random to ensure that no party has undue influence on any of the polling stations. Just let me give you an idea of the magnitude of this task. Next year, almost 13 million citizens will be will be visited by the Electoral Institute to draw between them 1.5 million officials who will be the ones who integrate the close to 170,000 polling stations that will be installed throughout the country. Th that is just like in numbers what it means to organize elections in Mexico. And this means that the electoral body combines both enormous territorial deployment as it's charged with organizing both the federal elections and partially the local elections. It's also charged with setting the rules to, that apply to them. But it also has a function of the arbitration of these elections, guaranteeing both citizens' political rights, including the right to voter ID, to, to an ID, which is the voter ID is Mexico's ID, and to guarantee a, a fair playing field for all of those involved in the electoral process. But when in Mexico we talk about a fair playing field, this includes the administration of a unique political communications model, which serves to guarantee fair access to public and private radio and TV stations for candidates and political parties. In the US uh, specifically, people are usually surprised to hear that in Mexico buying TV or radio ads for elections is absolutely prohibited by the constitution. Instead, Candidates and parties are apportioned a set amount of time in radio and TV, and the electoral authority records all transmissions in radio and TV and all the channels and all the stations to be able to monitor the compliance with our strict, with our strict campaign rules. The electoral authority is also uh, charged with content moderation by uh, the adoption of precautionary measures to guarantee the compliance with these strict rules. And and, and these, what is said, who says it, and when it's said is very relevant. And there's very important or very uh, uh, fundamental values at stake, freedom of expression, freedom of information, the right of all candidates and political parties to communicate with citizens the way they see best, but also the need to uphold rules where public servants cannot intervene in political processes. And this uh, guaranteeing a fair playing field also includes campaign finance auditing to determine whether candidates and, uh, and, and campaigns complied 
with our uh, finance rules. In Mexico, again, it is absolutely forbidden for companies to donate money to political campaigns or to buy political ads. And there are limits to both how much can be spent and how much an individual in himself or in themselves can donate to a campaign. Just I'm saying all this because uh, the electoral body is a key institution to preserve the fairness of the electoral competition. And despite it being called an electoral body, its functions are much broader since it's basically responsible for ensuring trust on the electoral process, on the results, and on the transmission of power between what wants the people in charge of a position and that position. I think this is really important um, point for you to be making as well, because the U.S., I always say, is the exception versus the rule of how many elections are run. But there is a real attempt by the current president and his party to try to reduce the amount of, I, I don't know the best way to say it, responsibilities of INE and really try to strip down some of those, the power that it had going into this election. But the Supreme Court ultimately overruled that. Do I do I have that timeline of events correct? You have it correct. The Right now, the president has the majority of Congress, but the president has, like the president's party has a majority of Congress, but the relative majority, not the absolute majority. What do we mean by that? They have more than, they have more than 50% of both chambers, but not three fourths of both chambers. And for you to change the constitution, you need uh, not not three fourths. I'm sorry, two thirds of, of, of Congress. And they, his political party and, and his allies do not have that amount of congressmen. Therefore, they could not make a constitutional reform to strip down the the functions of the body or to undermine the, its ability to be able to ensure free and fair elections. But then there was a legal uh, reform. The, the 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 laws were changed. And uh, there is where the Supreme Court decided that those reforms were unconstitutional because they had not followed a democratic process for them to be approved by Congress. And I think one of the other interesting things about the Mexican elections is that it is, at least for president, it's on a six-year term. So they only happen once every six years where many other countries are maybe on a four or five year cycle and the president can only be president for one term. I'm curious about if you have any historical context as to why that was and what advantages and disadvantages you think exist with having that sort of structure. In Mexico, the point of no re-election, specifically for president, but for unipersonal uh, positions, like president, governors, or uh, basically presidents or governors, it's one of the founding principles of our system that there will be no re-election. Why do we have the principle of no re-election in Mexico? Because we had tons of presidents who re-elected themselves time and again, and then they would run again. On the, the next one would run the elections, calling for no re-election. And then they will they would reelect themselves when they were in power. So after the Mexican Revolution, one of the founding principles was no reelection. And therefore, it, it was decided that there would be six year terms because there would be no no reelection. And uh, there I mean, there's different systems that work in different countries in our in Mexico. The system of no reelection has uh, is, is very like uh, embedded in our culture and in our 
democratic thinking. Got it. So why do you think people should care about the Mexico elections? There's an unprecedented number that are happening next year all around the world. Like, what do you tell people outside of the country of why you really need to pay attention to what will be happening there? I think that, I mean, you you could say that Mexico is one of the largest economies in Latin America and the Caribbean, and that would be something to pay attention to in itself. But mainly, I think that in a world where democracy and democratic ideals are being challenged all the time right now, Mexico has something that it can offer, and it's a very robust electoral system, one that has been recognized worldwide as having innovative ways of creating trustworthy elections, despite conditions that are inauspicious for democracies, such as poverty, inequality, a short democratic history, high levels of violence and insecurity. And that makes Mexico very resilient to democratic challenges. And sustaining the strength of this robust electoral body is something that is fundamental, especially in the region where many electoral authorities have lost their strength or their democratic vocation. So really quickly, because I just realized we didn't say when the election is. I've seen generally, I know in 2018, it happened in July. I've seen on Wikipedia that it's June 2nd. Do you know if a date's actually been set yet for the elections? And it's okay if you don't. I'm putting you on the spot right now. I just was curious so we could share with people. It's June 2nd because it's uh, constitutionally, it's the first Sunday of June. The election is, is held the first Sunday of June and all the elections, all the federal elections and all the local elections that happened the same year as the presidential election happened on the exact same date. That is something that we've tried to put the, as many elections as possible together for it, to, for us, for people to only have to go to the polling station once every three years in the federal level, local level, sometimes they have to go in other times, but in the federal level, both the president and the Senate are elected fully in for six-year terms, and uh, the Chamber of Deputies is elected for three years. So in Mexico, we usually go to midterm elections every three every three years after the presidential election, and then we go to full elections uh, every six years. I don't know why I thought 2018 was in July. So it must have been June. It all is kind of a blur to me, <laughs> that whole yeah. time period. 2018 was in July. Uh, elections used to be the first Sunday of July. And we changed we changed the Constitution in 2014. And except for the 2018 elections, all elections are held on the first uh, Sunday of June. Okay, so I'm not going crazy on that point. I'm glad because I'm like, oh, my God, I've been spreading misinformation and my memory has been misleading me on that. So, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Spreading misinformation, you're absolutely accurate. <laughs> so um, moving sort of to the online space, what are some of the more popular online platforms that people are using in Mexico and how have they played a role in past elections? In Mexico, we have the highest user base for in Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, TikTok, a little less in X, uh, formerly Twitter, and Telegram. But a lot of the political messaging happens through X. Yet the like the main platform is still Facebook, WhatsApp, WhatsApp, and Instagram, and TikTok has has really grown. And the social media platforms have basically become an indispensable medium 
for the spread of political information or electoral information and for political discussion. Most of the campaigns run on social media. And uh, they, that is where the political messages are spread, where information is uh, disseminated, and where people uh, engage both with uh, political parties, with candidates, and between uh, uh, to, to have political debates. We're living in an era of great polarization, so those political discussions or those democratic discussions have been complicated recently. But uh, the social media platforms have have, have 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 really grown in the electoral arena. We used to have, if if you, if you recall from what I just explained about our electoral system, we have a very strict rules for TV and radio ads. That is because we have a, a very concentrated media in Mexico. So in 2007, when we made one of the constitutional reforms, we put all the rules for, uh, like all the strict rules for TV and radio. But uh, at, since probably 2012, most of the campaigns have been running on social media. And we, you can see in the electoral processes both the positive side of, of uh, elections running on social media and the negative side of, of uh, elections running on social media. You have the possibility to communicate as we had never had, to receive information and to spread information as we had never had, to have to hold accountable both the political uh, candidates and public servants. But you also have the problems of the spread of disinformation or misinformation. You also have problems of the spread of hate speech. The use of um, social media platforms to as electoral strategies, sometimes to unduly influence elections. Or, for example, we have had the creation of journalistic sites that are not really journalistic, that, that are created just to disseminate uh, fake news and make money intentionally and to influence voters uh, or, or or unduly influence voters or to uh, derail democratic processes. Uh, it has been used to spread disinformation having to do with uh, electoral authorities' work and with the political candidates that have that are running in in an election. we We've seen both sides of the coin, let's put it that way, in the use of social media in, in Mexico. And something that has also been growing and that we will probably see in these next elections is the use of social media influencers to uh, promote political messaging and to try to circumvent our strict electoral rules in both finance rules and uh, and the rules having to do with those public servants not influencing political elections. And I'm saying we will probably see this in this election because one of the candidates that will probably be running in this presidential election, his wife is a social media influencer. And when he ran for the governorship of one of Mexico states, she had she played a fundamental role in that election. So this is something that we will probably see again in this election.
Yeah, I think that's something the the use of influencers is going to be, I think, a huge component in a lot of elections around the world. And like you said, it's going to be really hard to track who's getting paid, who's not getting paid, what that looks like. I want a really quick clarifying question. Can campaigns run digital ads, even though there's all the strict rules on television and cable and all of that? Or are they not able to spend money on digital? They can spend money on digital ads. There's just uh, campaign spend expenditure taps, but it can okay. be spent on social media platforms with no problem. They just have to comply with the rules that have been set. For example, if you can uh, promote uh, campaign messages only throughout the campaign, the 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 the, the, the temporarily during the campaign. If you promote, if a candidate promotes himself or herself before the campaign starts as the candidate to the election. That's something that is prohibited, both offline and online. But there's no there, there's no additional measures or prohibitions having to do with uh, the, the digital campaigns. Is there a blackout period for Mexico's election? So, as you know, some countries, you know, you can't talk about it 24 hours, 48 hours ahead of time. The campaigns have to shut down. I can't remember if Mexico has that or not. Three days before the election. Okay. The campaigns Makes sense. three days before the election day. It's meant to be a period of reflection. That's how it's conceived so that uh, voters can think of the decision they want to make and freely go on Sunday morning and, or Sunday throughout the day to vote for whichever candidates they want to vote. It's another one of those things where I say that to people in America and they just look at me like I've got five heads on that they can't imagine having any sort of like that sort of, sort of quiet period or, or anything like that as part of elections. We have to understand that in Mexico, in Mexico, our electoral system has so many rules and so many strict rules because it was built on mistrust. So it is a system that has rules for to guarantee that both Every single person that should be able to vote can vote, that they can vote freely and that their vote will be counted accurately, but also that there is a fair play, fair leveled playing field between the political candidates and political parties. Because we come from a hegemonic history of 70-year rule of one political party where the election we held elections every six years, only they were not very democratic, let's put it that way. The only thing that we knew ahead of that election was who was going to win the election. And that is the only uncertainty that you should have in democracies. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point, especially as a lot of, you know, again, America, other places that are now, so a lot of times, sometimes people in the US think this is the first time a country's had to grapple with some of these problems. And I'm like, oh, dear goodness, no, like, look elsewhere around the world. There's a lot to be learned from this. Um Shifting back, though, to kind of the tech companies and stuff, when I was still at Facebook in 2018, I remember Ine, I think it was one of the first, if not the first election body to enter into a memo of of understanding and MOU with some of the tech companies to sort of, I don't think it was legally binding, but it was sort of an agreement between Ine and the companies of, here's some of the things that you're going to do to help to protect the integrity of these elections. Do you think that those are sort of effective tools and partnerships between electoral bodies and companies? First, it, INA was the first electoral body to enter an MOU with tech companies, specifically with Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Google at the time. And it was to counter disinformation, to spread reliable information and useful information for citizens, for example, election dates, maps for polling station locations, uh, infographics on, on the correct way to vote, 
and uh, tech companies gave training to the electoral authorities as to how to use the platforms and how to be able to uh, understand the messages spread through uh, social media uh, platforms. And these measures, I, I think they were very positive. I think they have proven to be very positive. And they have been even internationally recognized, particularly by the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, as a good practice, both uh, to raise awareness on the phenomenon of disinformation, to draw attention on it, and to encourage citizens not to replicate false information, to provide tools to verify information, and to contrast false information with true information. I think this is something that has been positive and it, and, and it, it has even been replicated in other countries uh, throughout the world. And I think that it has even been bettered, made better through other MOUs that have been signed with, with other countries. For example, in the recent election in Brazil, Facebook had a very large amount of measures put in place Electoral, electoral integrity measures precisely to uh, counter some the immense spread of disinformation that was uh, that, that was disseminated throughout the electoral campaign through the electoral process itself and after the electoral process too. Well, and it was one of the only things that actually got Telegram to finally that in their judicial system and the threat of shutting them down in Brazil to actually get Telegram to even respond to anybody as as part of um, any sort of that electoral process. So yeah, I re I just I remember that as sort of it, it really replicating across Latin America, India, many other places who signed MOUs with these with these companies to um, I think. You know, at least, you know, it, I found it to bring a real sense of partnership to the, the problems that we were trying to face and trying to, to bring that together and have a transparent understanding for people of like, okay, here's what's actually happening between these two entities. And even one thing that is not usually known, the political ads library was actually created because of Mexican electoral body asking the tech companies information about political ads that were being bought throughout the campaigns. And we asked the, the Facebook specifically so many times, give me information about who's paying these ads, how much. Oh, I, paying, remember. I remember. I <laughs> remember for the for our campaign finance auditing, and yeah, Facebook finally decided to create the Facebook uh, political ads library because they said it's much easier for us to create the library than to be answering your questions that you send to us every single day. Because as I said, we have very strict campaign rules. And monitoring of those. Yeah, no, it, it was a combination of what happened in the U.S. of not mm -hmm. only Mexico, but of many countries asking us those types of questions that all went into sort of that decision of of building it. And I I don't think we had it built in time for the 2018 elections, but for future local ones and stuff. And I think this will be the first presidential level election that will have Facebook and Google and others will have those ad transparency tools available to Mexico. 2018, it was available. It was, it was we started asking it. If I, I thought if we I, launched it in the U.S. and we'll have to go back and check because I feel like I remember we launched it in Brazil, for Brazil in the midterms because we didn't launch it till May, but I'll have to go back and double check. It, the, the life's a blur at that point in time. And and there may have been stuff too that we were providing data or something like that. Um, but um, you are right that it was one of the first elections and the questions that, that you all were um, asking. Um, 
kind of shifting a little bit to there's obviously a lot of issues online that happen with the election. But what other concerns do you have as Mexico enters its electoral period? You know, I've been reading a lot. You know, there's a lot of concerns around journalist safety and uh, the rights of a free press there. I'm, I'm curious what other things are sort of maybe keeping you up at night as we go into next year. Uh, journalist safety is a, a very important concern in Mexico generally. And of course, it is uh, compounded in electoral processes. Violence is, of course, the the, the, the the rising levels of violence in Mexico are a problem that we have to address. The intervention that you can have of uh, drug cartels in the, the elections is also a very important concern. Uh, but I would say that one of my main concerns is probably that the elections are taking place in a context of absolute political polarization. And, and when I say political polarization, I'm not just talking about confronting different visions, different positions, ideologies, which would be typical about in, in any election or in any power stru- democratic power struggle. But because this polarization has it's, it's based on the denial of the other as the point of departure and the point of arrival. And in such marked processes of polarization, democratic debate and the discussions of political projects, of ideas, becomes very difficult. And it leaves aside the, the, even the proposal of solutions to very serious problems we face in our country such as violence, insecurity, poverty, inequality, among many others. And also because, as we have seen in many countries around the world, this uh, creates a fertile ground for the emergence of leaders that offer simplistic answers to these shortcomings of democracy and that rely on the concentration of power to promote... uh, effective polarization, disinformation, exclusionary measures, exclusionary narratives, and what is the so-called iron fist policies, both uh, through the militarization of public safety and the declaration of states of exception. And all of this not only threatens democratic ideals, but they have also contributed to the erosion of democracies in many countries in the region. That is why I, 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 I put a very important highlight on that point of polarization and, and why it's something that really keeps me up at night. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, to shift, I want to shift a bit to the oversight board, but we'll stay on the theme of elections. But first, just in case people aren't familiar, can you share really quickly what the board is and what its mission is? Of course. The board is an independent oversight body comprised of experts from around the world uh, that analyzes the global operations of Meta, of Meta's platforms, specifically uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram. And it's something that's relevant that is not fragmented territorially. It it, it analyzes its operations globally, though through a limited scope of action. What, what do I mean by a limited scope of action? It makes binding decisions. It has the accordances that it has, bind, it makes binding decisions on emblematic cases, on whether an enforcement action, and when I say enforcement action, is to keep up or to take down a specific content on Facebook or Instagram, if it's consistent with uh, not only with Meta's policies and values, but also with international human rights standards. 
And the board also makes policy recommendations that are aimed to shape Meta's policies to ensure that the company is more transparent, that it enforces in its rules in a more even way, it's, it treats users more fairly, but also recognizing the complexity of moderating content at scale. Uh, and I would say Meta is implementing the majority of these recommendations. And these recommendations cover everything from how to reduce hate speech on platforms without dampening freedom of expressions, how to, uh, by telling users in more detail why their content is taken down, if it was done by human reviewers or by automation, if there was intervention of governments for uh, to, to, to for for a specific enforcement decision, uh, it, it, it covers many different areas. These policies, recommendations, and these decisions are independent decisions. That is, they they are made without the influence of a business or political interests. And what they seek is to hold Meta to account, to push the company to improve, to put human rights, free speech, and fairness to users at the heart of its decisions. And there, there's three things that, I, that, apart from this, I'd like to highlight uh, of the board's work. It, the first is that the board investigates not only, even though our scope of action is related to one content decision, the investigation that we uh, bring about not is not only on the enforcement decision itself, but on other elements that led to that decision, including, for example, the design and functioning of the systems and other factors that are, are external to the decision, but that have an impact on it. For example, the use of automation, the company's processes, the involvement of governments, and to make its decisions, that would be the second point, the board assumes that there's the vital importance that uh, of having stakeholder engagement and input. And uh, because there, there are so many people that have been thinking of this, these problems for so, such a long time, and there's so many contextual nuances to all the different countries and regions throughout the world when you have a global platform. And so stakeholder engagement and inputs are fundamental for our work. And the third point would be, I think, the board seeks to provide fuller explanations to the public, more information that was publicly available regarding the operations of the systems, its designs, its processes, its policies, its enforcement decisions, to, uh, again, not only make Facebook more transparent, but also to give more transparency to somewhat opaque ways of uh, the platform's work. And what the board tries to do is make principled decisions so that, that are based on uh, international human rights standards so that they can be used by the company through the uh, policy recommendations in other decisions that are, uh, that are broader than the decision itself where it was made. And one of the pillars, I think it was maybe the end of last year, or the beginning of this year, you all announced, I think it was seven pillars of work that you wanted to kind of really focus your cases around. And one of those is elections. And I'm curious why the board decided that and what you're hoping to achieve as we go into the next year, huge number of elections. You are completely right again. Uh, we have seven strategic priorities, one of them being uh, election and civic spaces. And 
the reason to to have this pillar as one of our focuses or strategic priorities is because social media plays an increasingly important role in elections and elections are crucial for democracy uh platforms can be used to share information that is very important to voters to spread political messages but as I, I, I mentioned a moment ago regarding Mexico. We have also seen how destructive they can, they can be uh, in spreading disinformation and spreading hate speech. And in the board, we think it's fundamental to try to ensure that Meta protects political discourse and that Meta prevents its platforms from being exploited to undermine democracy, to incite violence or to undermine uh, democracy. And the board has found through its case decisions that Meta's community standards sometimes fail to consider the wider political, uh, social, and digital context of content in its platforms. This has often led to a disproportionate restriction on freedom of expression, uh, as, as well as it has led to under-enforcement of content policies that... Uh, seek to prevent promoting hate or inciting violence. And addressing and resolving these issues is critically important in elections, especially in countries in countries or regions that are experiencing uh, large-scale protests, highly contested or polarized elections, or other civic events. We have uh, made decisions, for example, that don't have to do with elections, but do have to do with civic space. In the Iran case, mm-hmm. where in the protests, in the midst of the protests uh, against the Iranian government, the, the phrase uh, Mark Bar Khomeini, uh, death to Khomeini, that's the literal translation, was uh, being used as a protest slogan. But in Iran, when the phrase death to Khomeini is used, it means down with the regime. It is not a credible threat against Khomeini, but a political discourse trying to counter a system that is leaving so many people behind. And we also saw this in the Brazil case. The Brazil case did have to do with elections, post-electoral violence, but uh, post-electoral violence is completely related to elections. And uh, we also had, for example, the Cambodia case, where in the in the lead up to the election, the Cambodian prime minister used time and again the platforms, weaponized the platforms to silence his political opponents, to incite violence against his political opponents. And in these cases, what we have tried to do is to provide Meta with a, a, a better framework to try to address elections worldwide. In this regard, I think that there's a very important policy recommendation that we made in the Brazil case, in which we recognize, even though in, in the Brazil case, Brazil General's case, uh, we found that Meta made made a mistake in, not, in leaving up content that it should have removed because it was a content that incited violence, violence that actually occurred in, in, in Brazil. And though that happened, Meta had set up a great amount of efforts to try to ensure electoral integrity. Yet it did not have a framework for evaluating these efforts and for publicly reporting on these efforts. So we asked Meta to develop that framework, uh, which includes creating and sharing metrics for success of these uh, election integrity efforts. 
uh, with respect to the enforcement of its policies, but also to the company's approach to ads. And what the board aimed with this recommendation was to improve for Meta to improve its content moderation system as a whole, to have more information to better decide how to best employ its resources in electoral contexts, to draw on local knowledge, and to be have more tools to better evaluate uh, coordinated online and offline uh, campaigns that are aimed at uh, inciting violence or disrupting democratic uh, processes. And this was thought of not for the Brazilian election, which had already passed, but this recommendation was thought of seeing that we will have a huge tsunami of elections the next year. I mean, we will have throughout the world more than 80 elections, I think. And I, I worry about them. They keep me up at night because I think that the risk of coordinated, authentic and inauthentic behavior that can be related to them can, uh, the, the impacts that certain narratives that are spread before and during or after elections can have on electoral processes and on democ democracies themselves uh, are very impactful. And uh, we try to provide elements or measures for Meta to be to have more tools to uh, prevent real-world harm and to inform a way forward that is consistent and aligns with uh, human rights principles. That's fantastic. I have one question, more question for you that um, it might be kind of hard, but given that the name of the podcast is Impossible Trade-Offs and you, the Oversight Board, that all your cases are these, I feel like, like they are really nuanced, hard cases. But is there one in particular that you found particularly hard for yourself when navigating that you like really struggled with sort of the trade-offs of what to recommend to Meta that they should do? <sighs> I think that probably one of the cases that was hardest for for the board to, at least for me, to decide on was not a case itself, but a policy advisory opinion, the cross-check PAO. The cross-check, yep. Because the cross-check is a system to provide additional levels of review on enforcement measures for specific either entities or contents. D depending on uh, if it's uh, on, on, on which program it is in cross-check. But that means that when a specific entity um, spreads or posts specific content that is found potentially bi violating, that is potentially violating, it will remain online for a longer time while it goes through an enhanced review. And this is something that we found that Meta used this these cross-check lists many times for business reasons or for uh, internal reasons. But there's a big tension between that and its human rights responsibilities with more human rights or relevant content or relevant or entities that can spread content that is relevant for human rights purposes. And finding what the right measure was to ask which recommendations to make was not simple at all, because what we aimed to achieve was to make that system better, to make it fulfill its intended or stated purpose uh, as to protect human rights, to protect both freedom of expression and other human rights harms that can occur online, especially, again, when we take into account 
the challenges that come from moderating content at scale, at the scale of the amount, the volume, the reach, the speed at which content spreads in social media platforms, especially when you have the, the amount of languages, countries, uh, religions, uh, cultural backgrounds that are very different throughout the world. And you have content policies that are global and that don't always see the nuances that are necessary to actually protect speech that has to be protected and to take down speech that can be very harmful for people or for democracies. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. As somebody who was trying to do that internally when I was still at Facebook, um, I know how challenging that was. And I was very impressed. I was worried at what the report from the Oversight Board would be in which you get into a lot of that nuance. And you all really did. And I thought it was a very accurate description as sort of those trade-offs and stuff. So I appreciate all the work that you and the Oversight Board members put into that to really, truly understand sort of and really try to dig into dig into that and, and understand it before making that decision. But Pamela, we are out of time. I so appreciated this conversation. I can nerd out with you on election stuff forever, but thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Katie. And I think it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. Thank you.